This episode contains discussion of Canada's residential school system. Please take care while listening. Resources for support are available on our website should you need them. In 2012, Carrie Newman submitted an application to Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission for an ambitious project to collect a piece of history from every residential school in the country and to bring them together in an art installation. I don't think I had any idea when I came up with the concept how it would continue to resonate for me personally, but also in in this sort of work of truth, this work of toward reconciliation. The project would take him and his team across Canada, collecting almost 900 objects in total, all assembled together to create the witness blanket. It's it's constructed of objects and stories that have been gathered from residential schools, churches, government buildings, and traditional and contemporary indigenous buildings and cultural structures from across this country. The project was made possible through funds set aside in the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement because it was recognized that compensation alone would not be enough to promote the healing so needed by families, communities, nations, and the country as a whole. In addition to truth-telling and public education, commemoration was understood as an essential part of healing and reconciling these difficult histories. I usually credit the survivors um, with providing the opportunity because they earmarked the, the, the commemoration fund out of the any residential school settlement agreement. Um, and so they were effectively spending their own money to commemorate um, and to remember. And, and that, that kind of that generosity of spirit, of commitment to, uh, to truth, that's, that's, I've learned a lot from, from just from that act. Of the roughly 139 recognized residential schools in the country, less than 20 remain standing in some form or another. The rapidly disappearing traces of this systemic injustice makes preservation and memorialization even more important and even more contentious. But decisions of what to do with these sites need to be conducted with the utmost of care because these places are deeply powerful sites of memory. Around the world, communities are grappling with the traces of systemic violence and human rights violations that exist in the landscape around us. This episode is about these places that have tangible connections to human rights abuses, about how we remember injustices when the physical signs of that history are no longer visible, and what we do with the buildings and structures that still stand. We'll be talking to Carrie Newman about bearing witness to the truth of our collective history in this country. In fact, I'm, I'm convinced that we need to give enough space to the truth that it becomes part of who we are. It becomes part of what it means to be Canadian. And speaking with Oliver Schmitke about Germany's path working to reconcile its dark past. And so how do you reinvent yourself and still live with the legacy of this horrific injustice? 
before hearing from Tavia Panton about her work teaching Liverpool's next generation of local historians. Revealing the truth in this way and revealing a more nuanced and accurate history is not about oppressing anyone, it's about empowering people who have been left out of that. My name is Rai Moran. This is Tapwewin, talking about what we know and what we believe. A podcast from the territories of the Lekwungen people and the libraries and archives of the University of Victoria. It's becoming better understood that one of the largest human rights failures in Canadian history is the residential school system, a system which cloaked the forced assimilation of Indigenous peoples under the guise of education. As we heard in the statements of survivors, and so clearly documented in the reports of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, these institutions were ripe with every kind of abuse. These so-called schools were used as weapons against Indigenous peoples in an effort to destroy cultures, traditions, languages, families, and identity. While many Canadians are still grappling with better understanding the truth of what occurred in these places, there remains a vocal set of Canadian society also demonstrating an outright unwillingness to listen and embracing ongoing denial from others. But the residential school system and the violation of human rights that occurred there is part of the truth of our history. And it is this heavy legacy and the efforts to make that truth known that Carrie's work in the witness blanket honors and commemorates. Uh, Hello, my name is Carrie Newman. My traditional name is Hiles Kingame. I come from the Kukwekum, Gixam, and Wawalabai clans of the Kokwakiwak Nation on the northern end of Vancouver Island and from Chiama of the Stalo Nation along the upper Fraser Valley, which is Coast Salish territory. Through my mom, I'm English, Irish, Scottish settler stock from Saskatchewan. I'm an artist, a carver, and I'm the inaugural impact chair in Indigenous art practices here at the University of Victoria. Carrie and I have known each other for a long time. In your words, how, how do we know one another, Carrie? Do we really know each other, Rye? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I guess we met like way before all of this stuff, right? Like I made your wedding rings. We really got to know each other once I started working at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, getting into the habit of having pretty frequent discussions about concepts like truth and reconciliation. Carrie was actually one of the first interviews we conducted for this project, back before we even had our own recording studio. So one morning in December, we were just sitting at this little desk over at the university radio station. I'm going to have a hard time with this. <laughs> so I keep looking at you. No, no, I'm not going to look at you. This is weird. Like when we Normally when we have these conversations, we're sitting over a counter. Yes. We're... On the phone. On the phone. I'm, it's not often that I sit across from you and look you directly in the eyes. I know. It's, it's kind of like it's a special moment. Yeah. <laughs> Carrie has worked on large-scale projects for years, but the witness blanket is monumental in every sense of the word. 
stretching 10 feet tall and 40 feet across. It's a blanket in an abstract sense, constructed out of pieces of cedar arranged with the utmost of care, held together with steel cable that allows movement and flexibility. Weaving together objects and stories, Carey's work draws on both his Kwakwakiwak and Coast Salish ancestry. In his Kwakwakiwak culture, blankets are representative of identity, while in Coast Salish traditions, they are used to both honor and protect. When you stand in front of the witness blanket, it absolutely envelops you. It's a work so dense with meaning, it demands time to look, listen, feel, and most importantly, witness. When I started, I kind of had this idealized version of what I thought the project would be. I thought it would come to be a, a visual representation of reconciliation, but the the reality is that it's it's become a visual record of truth. And it holds stories. And within the stories is the deeper truth that we're talking about. I haven't even, as the the maker or the artist behind the blanket, been able to synthesize and understand all levels of the truth that's held within the work that I was part of creating. I think that's an indication of how big the truth is. Carrie is an intergenerational survivor. For him, this is a deeply personal history. I was thinking about, um, if we could, and if you're okay with it, I want to talk to you a bit about St. Michael's Residential School. Yeah. Um, so St. Michael's is in Alert Bay. That's where my dad grew up for part of his life. Uh, but it actually isn't the school he went to. He went to Seashell. However, other of my aunts and uncles did go to St. Michael's. So we have a pretty strong family connection to to that school and to to the town. St. Michael's was an imposing structure, one that absolutely towered over the community of Alert Bay. The building was the first thing you saw as you arrived in the community via the small car ferry that left from Port McNeil on Vancouver Island. Like so many of the residential schools built in the 1920s, it was a pretty stout building, H-shaped, with its four floors lined with rigid rows of windows. Constructed out of red brick, it had, at one point, been painted white. But by the time Carrie visited for the witness blanket, this same paint was peeling and flaking off, giving the building a distinct feeling of decay. And when we went up there, we had organized to speak with lots of different survivors. We had organized to have a walkthrough of the school to gather a few different objects. We had an opportunity there to to kind of go with some of our ways, right? Kwakwakiwak ways. That's Kwakwakiwak territory. So a lot of the interviews that we did with survivors were actually in the big house which I thought was a really powerful place to sit and listen to, to that history. And one of the people we spoke to was my uncle Edwin, who's the, the chief of our family and who went to, um, went to St. Mike's. 
At the center of the witness blanket is a wooden door. The white paint is cracking, betraying its age and instantly drawing one's mind into the past. The reason that we gathered the door was because some of the stories we'd heard about what had happened in that room, so behind that door. Fast forward to when I'm making the witness blanket. One of the very, very last contributions to come in was uh, a piece of artwork by George Littlechild, who submitted this very poignant charcoal drawing called A Priest and His Prey. So I ended up transferring the image to the door, to the inside of the door, thinking about, you know, the stories that I'd heard about what happened behind there. After the blanket was finished, Carrie went on to talk to George. As I'm sitting in his home, he says, Carrie, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I made this drawing after listening to survivor testimony at the TRC event in Vancouver. It was in response to a survivor story. And that survivor was your uncle. So here we are, and I'd been there, and I'd heard my uncle talk about his experience. And I'd gathered this door. And then, unbeknownst to me, I had placed the, this image that was inspired by his, his testimony on a door from the same school as he attended. Uh, and it, it seems to me like those two, those two stories found each other. And those two truths found each other. And my uncle's recently passed, so it's, it's kind of become a little bit more difficult to, to think about and talk about that, that time. Um, but I remember sitting on the dirt floor of the big house, listening to him share. Opened in 1894 by the Anglican Church, initially as a day school, St. Michael's remained in operation until 1974. The year after it was closed, the building was transferred to the Namgis First Nation and was used for a variety of purposes over the next several decades, from administrative offices to a carving space for artists. Like so many other residential schools across the country, St. Michael's was a place where terrible atrocities happened. It's also a place where the memory and trauma are not easily washed away. By 2015, the community had come to the decision that the building had to be demolished. Uh, what's going to unfold in the next hour? Um, first of all, we know why we're here. We know why we're here. On a chilly day in February of 2015, as the sun tried to break through broken overhead cloud, which threatened rain, Kwakwakiwak elder Alex Nelson addressed the crowd gathered before the former residential school, an event that was also recorded as part of the archive of the witness blanket. And so, as we move into this program, we have searched diligently and honorably to our ancestors to help guide us because we've never been in this real situation before where there's a demolition of a building. And so we have healing practices that we've searched deeply for 
And so as the ceremonies go on, we've tried to use our hearts to help guide us. Deborah Hanus, former elected chief of the Namgis First Nation, also spoke to those gathered. It has been said that those who forget their past are doomed to repeat it. Demolition of this building will not erase the legacy of the Indian Residential School. Nor will demolition of this building erase from our memories the generations of children who walked through those front doors. These children will not be forgotten. I was there that day of the ceremony, one of many people gathered to witness something that our producer Karina wanted to ask me about. What was that experience like of standing in that crowd that day? I think for me, for so much of my my journey along this pathway has just tried to be present just as a witness. I think one of the most striking things that I remembered or felt was the sound of after most of the speeches and after Bobby Joseph and everything had finished speaking where at that point people were um, either being given or were picking up rocks and then were throwing them through the windows. And it's hard to kind of describe exactly what those sounds were, but it was the sound of quiet, of crying, of sobbing, uh, the sound of breaking glass, the sound of healing and consoling. You know, again, it's just one of those things you can't really, it's hard to describe unless you were there. One thing for certain is that um, you couldn't help but see that school when you arrived in and out of Alert Bay. I mean, it was so dominant in that community. And, and we've heard this so many times across the country, what the experiences were of children as they were locked up inside of these schools and not being allowed to leave and not being allowed to go home while still being able to see home right outside the window. You know, I was visiting with somebody just the other day who said they could see their grandparents' house outside of their window and literally could not get to it all year. They were not allowed to return home. One of the other speakers that day was Chief Robert Joseph, known to many as Bobby, another survivor from St. Michael's. It's important for us. This is our moment. When we can begin to look at ourselves differently, to begin to know that all of us born, no matter what color, what creed, what race, as little children we have value. And we should have been allowed to have discovered our purpose in life. I was thinking the other day, I stood on the top of those steps where those people are there. It was on my last day here. I had gone in to pack my meager belongings and I looked out and suddenly it hit me that I had nowhere to go, no sense of value, no sense of purpose. And I'm saying to all of you parents here, those of you who have young people graduating, you know how those young people feel when they graduate. It's a time for celebration and I stood there at those steps broken and full of despair. The first time when I was a little guy and my mother was 
holding my hand, we were walking up toward the school. I didn't know that across this land there were thousands and thousands of other little children whose hands were being held and were taken. Destruction is often equated to loss, but it can also be a powerful act of healing, one that reclaims agency as a first step in moving forward. I I look at some of us survivors and I, I think, my God, how could you have made it this far? But we have made it this far and we're going to go further and we're going to inspire other people to walk with us. What else could I say, my relatives? Other than to express my gratitude for the kind of people you are. I ask you to have strong hearts so that we can go on. So that we can go on taking care of ourselves and each other. The Coast Salish have a really beautiful saying. They say, we have to hold each other up. We have to hold each other up. That's such a simple message. And I want you to know that there are many emotions here today some really deep sadness, some joy, some tears, some confusion. But we're gathered here because we decided that we would stand together and that we would find the strength and a way to move forward from you. That is all I have to say for now, brothers and sisters. Thank you. The St. Michael's School was fully knocked down shortly after this ceremony. Its permanent removal adds a new layer of meaning to Carrie's earlier visit. Walking through that school, carrying not just his story, but the stories of the other survivors who we spoke to while we were there, as I was seeing it with different eyes. And subsequently that school's been torn down, the community came together and they had a ceremony to, to remove it. And so it kind of is extra important to me now, I think, that I went there, that we have the video of, of that place, of people standing inside Stan Hunt, standing inside talking about his experiences. Um, because it's a different kind of truth in that way. It's more responsive. It's, it was often quite emotional um, in that process of gathering those stories and, and standing inside of, of those buildings that represented such terrible memories for so many people, and yet they were willing to go there to share. And you can see in the eyes and you can feel in the way that people breathe the courage that that took. This obligation to remember human rights abuses and genocide is not just a Canadian problem. To give us more context for how another nation is struggling to reconcile their dark past, we talked with Dr. Oliver Schmicke, 
who was one of my, truth be told, favorite professors when I was a student here at UVic. I'm Oliver Schmidtke. I've been a professor at UVic for the past 20 years, political science and history, but I've also been directing the Center for Global Studies for the past 10 years. Might be of interest to your listeners that I'm currently based in Europe for the year. Why I am a fellow at the Hamburg Institute for Advanced Study. What I learned in Oliver's classes stayed with me all the way through my work with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, to the point where his course readings were on my shelf through to my time at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. So it felt important to speak with him about these complicated interactions between history memory and place a little bit about the broad trajectory of how memory has been sort of encountered or confronted or 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 dealt with in germany germany had to grapple with this kind of memory politics since uh, the second world war you know the task of to commemorate and in a way address the legacy of the third reich and the holocaust has been with the federal public of germany and the, the eastern part of the gdr since its uh, existence since 1949 so how do you reinvent yourself and still live with the legacy of this horrific injustice that has been a fundamental um, question that germany has been struggling with and it started you know maybe understandably but also politically um, difficult in a difficult way uh, with a kind of collective amnesia. You know, nobody wanted to talk about the past. You know, there was this very convenient myth of a zero hour, right? We, we start from scratch. On a personal level, it was also a way to deal with trauma and very difficult memories, right? I still remember, could never talk to my grandmother about her experience in the war and in the immediate post-war period. She was definitely not a supporter of the Nazis, but They've been forced to flee the eastern provinces. But it was also, I don't want to talk about it, right? It's, you know, it's in the past. Why touch on it? After roughly 20 years in the mid-60s, students started to revolt and question the uh, the strange silence uh, that had, in a way, imposed on the public arena in Germany in terms of addressing this past. And they started to question, right, what did our parents do, right? What was... You know, fascism and uh, national socialism like here in our cities, right? And these kind of questions started to politicize a whole generation, which then gradually resulted in, I think, quite an honest, uh, often painful uh, way of addressing the past in post-war West German culture. And so I think there has been quite a concerted effort by post-war German society starting in the 70s to take on this task in earnest and not look the other way, but um, but confront also uh, things of our collective past that uh, tended to be divisive, politically highly contested. And then I think we see a new phase now where the eyewitnesses um, are no longer around or you know, increasingly we can no longer rely on their accounts, right? They can no longer go to school. So how do we keep this memory alive? And the new generation, for them, it's so long ago, right? They say, why is this still the dominant narrative of how we collectively commemorate Germany's past? I think that's the, the phase we are in at the moment. I think the political elite and mainstream media, they, they are still quite committed to keeping, you know, also the ethical commitment to never again commemorate what happened then alive. But for the younger generation, it becomes really something that happened in the very old past. wonder if you can just generally comment, too, on how some of the public memorialization maps onto this. Because I think these truths are 
uh, becoming increasingly important to recognize in public spheres. You know, there's this whole question about what do we do with the spaces where these atrocities occurred. I think first, uh, for sure, the, the almost obvious signs of Nazism were, you know, taken down, you know, the swastikas, they were removed very quickly. But so you know, can appreciate the legacy, also the built legacy of a dictatorship like the ones by Nazi Germany. You know, they persisted, right? And I think the more awareness there um, was created for the legacy of um, this rule, the more actually sites were discovered to say, look, you know, we need to dig deeper here and understand how it ties back to this. But it is important to understand how also the build infrastructure of our cities, of our lands, you know, they tell a story. Right? But, but that needs also activism. And, and I think if you look back at who has in a way, pushed uh, the commemoration of this past injustice forward in Germany, it has also been very much grassroots, people on the ground. So in Germany in the 80s, we had this history movement, you know, small chapters basically starting, and their motto was, dig where you stand, try to understand local history and tie it back to uh, the national history. Right? But it makes sense of what you have lived in your communities and where you live. So that then these sites became sites of learning, of collective learning and, and understanding. So sometimes knowledge we do have, research, but to make it into a broad public recognition of past injustices that isn't cracked into our landscapes um, and into our cities, I think that's a different kind of task. The violent history of colonialism has left traces of itself on the land and in the built fabric of cities around the world, rendered invisible. As Oliver described, the history of these spaces requires work and research to resurface. So one museum worker in Liverpool is digging where she stands, grappling with the heavy legacy of Britain's role in the transatlantic slave trade that exists within the space she works. Um, these contested histories. I think I heard a quote by one of the local historians. He said something like, every brick in Liverpool has the blood of the enslaved within it, which is, yeah, it's very telling about these deep-rooted connections. Tavia works at the Blue Colt Gallery in Liverpool, which is the oldest contemporary arts centre in the UK. Hi, I'm Tavia Panton. I'm the project facilitator for Blue Coat Colonial Legacies. Um, this project is an arts and heritage project working with young people um, from Toxteth, Liverpool 8, um, to explore the colonial histories of Liverpool and the Blue Coat Building and to create a public programme of arts events. While we spoke, Tavia recounted the long and complex history of the Blue Coat. Um, well, it was founded in 1708 as a charity school for the city's poor and destitute uh, youth. But a lot of the money that went into opening and sustaining the Blue Coat in its earlier years um, was derived from the transatlantic slave trade and slavery. So they think uh, around 65% of that money um, helped sustain that building. The funds and wealth amassed as a result of the transatlantic slave trade were the foundation of Liverpool's growth and industrial development. Um, 
So Liverpool became the predominant uh, port in the transatlantic slave trade in Europe. So by, I think, 1795, it controlled 60% of the British slave trade and 40% of the European slave trade. And so the legacies of that are that Liverpool has one of the oldest black communities and one of the oldest Chinese communities. So um, within that space, I think it's very present sort of the effects of the transatlantic slavery in terms of how the city's been built, who the streets are named after, what statues are there, um, and also the inequality. Um, so that's something that the Black community have been try have been uh, fighting and surviving and doing a, like you know a, a really stellar job at addressing over the years. For a school that served the city's poor children, the Blue Coat Building is fairly ornate. But if you get close enough to the aged facade, old graffiti etched into the bricks from generations of former children is still visible to this day. You're working on this colonial legacies project at the Blue Coat. Um, why is it so important to dissect this, the the connections this, between you know the the histories and the transatlantic slave trade? Like, what are you what are you addressing when you do that? So I think it's important that you know the history of the place that you're brought up in, um, and the place where you hope to grow up as well. Um, it's important because it empowers the young people on the project to have that agency of understanding how their city functions and the relationship the different communities have with the place. Um, and I think, you know, they feel some of those, those negative legacies of colonialism um, like the sort of the racism that has been present in the city. Um, and I think it's it's important for them to understand and address where that comes from and to disrupt the a system that isn't necessarily designed to see them thrive in the way that they should. I think there's also a lot of power in the truth. Um, and I think it, it definitely, it's important for them to, to be able to own that and for the city itself to take accountability not speaking of blame but to have the responsibility to look at things as they are and to improve them for all communities to think about it in a different way tavia is training the next generation of memory keepers ones who will carry a much deeper and honest history and collective memory of their city going forward with our project I think it's something that many people in Britain with our curriculum, many young Black people, we kind of feel disconnected to what we're learning about. We're not, we don't feel represented necessarily in the curriculum. So I think with this project and creating future anti-racist leaders, it's about bringing that awareness and that knowledge of themselves at an earlier age. And so it's also about connecting through the generations as well. So part of the project is to bring on artists who've had had their own explorations through race and colonialism and um, the history of their locale. Um, and to 
for the for them to be mentors for the young people about giving them the tools to be able to navigate these things when we think about some of the um, opportunities for change for positive change i mean this is going to indicate that you know there's some fairly significant challenges that are still present can you give us a sense of what some of those deep-rooted challenges are that are tied directly to these histories that you're confronting i would say it's the main challenge is about bringing the communities together and to understand that revealing the truth in this way and revealing a more nuanced and accurate history is not about oppressing anyone it's about empowering people who have been left out of that Yeah, it seems like in that too, there's like this requirement or duty or obligation to keep repeating the same truths as well. We're in this time where we're still trying to establish, I guess, the basic facts or the basic kind of foundation of what the society is. And that's where, and some of that stuff is really fatiguing to... <laughs> Deal with it, right? <laughs> like it's it's fatiguing. It's like a, even a light word for it. Yeah. yeah, it's it's so true. Yeah, like that's that's the exhausting part, right? Yeah, and yeah, I think that's that's kind of part of that, the fatigue that comes from from not just uncovering and understanding truth on a personal level, but when you're engaged in working to share that outwards, um, the different levels of resistance or obstacles that you encounter everything from the kind of claim of ignorance and often that's true but it can only be true once right all the way to the active denial or sanitization um where where there are people who who don't believe that it's genocide who don't believe that there was any ill harm intended. When, if you do go deeper into looking at the documentation of how residential schools were started, and that's just one small aspect of colonization of the genocide we speak of, it's explicitly clear in the words of the founders what was intended. Mm -hmm. And the intention was to assimilate and erase indigenous identity, which is the very definition of genocide. So that part, you can, you can probably hear the change in my voice because my blood pressure is rising because that's, that's what gets me, is, is needing to explain that. I think that's a, big, that's a big piece of all of this. Like when you're dealing with these histories, when you're dealing with sites, when you're dealing with objects that inherently are so multifaceted, like on the one hand, you've got this horrific story of, of trauma, of violence, of oppression. You've got the inverse of that too, which is the strength, the resistance, the resilience. Yeah, I, I have mixed emotions about how to deal with the site itself. And, and I think that, that what I've come to around that is it's it's got to be up to the community to determine 
how they want to transform the site. And, and I think it's also important to recognize that even when the building is gone, until the site becomes something different, its presence is still there by its absence. So in some cases we see communities who have gone through the process of turning the school into something different. In other cases, we've seen communities decide that it needs to go. And the critical factor, I think, is what does it become? Even, even after you've torn it down, what does it become? Because if it doesn't become something new, then it's still a vacuum. If the building stands but doesn't become something new, then it's all of its associations are these these horrible memories. Um, for a while, I was thinking, you know, we we need to save them, and we need to save some, but a community has to have agency. Remembering does not always have to happen at the sites themselves, and if some distance is needed there are still tangible remains of these places within the witness blanket. I was thinking a lot lately because I've been, been reading about, you know, the way that when people use the phrase trauma-informed, but then people also talk about, you know, as indigenous makers or writers, the different ways that you can position that trauma and trying to, because I wasn't really thinking about those things when I was making the blanket, I was thinking about truth. Um, and sort of coming to grips with the realization that if it's trauma-focused, then it's not necessarily leading us forward. Like it could be really re-triggering for people. And I think, I'm, I, at least I believe, that because I made it with so much love and so much care, not just for my dad, but also thinking about my kid and also thinking about all of the other survivors and made specific intentional decisions around how to present different objects like that door, how I transformed the, the face of it so that it wouldn't be the same door, but I added elements to it, images, words, in an attempt to, to soften that moment of realization, if it were somebody who had faced that door in real life as a child. And, and I think that because of those kinds of decisions and that mindset, um, and I'm... I'm obviously open to to other opinions on this, but I think that doesn't ignore trauma, but doesn't focus on the trauma. On the inside of the door mounted within the witness blanket, below George Little Child's drawing, just at the height of the doorknob, are two small handprints. So I wanted to make it so the door would stay open, because I didn't want like symbolically to close the door on on things that happened behind it. And so when it was when the blanket was finished, I had 
my daughter, Adeline Common, put her handprints just below the George Littlechild's image of a priest in his prey and just push the door open with her little, little handprints. And she came to Winnipeg this time. And it's the first time I've, I think she's seen it since, since that time when she had those teeny little hands. And she's, you know, she's five years older now, six years older now. And her hands, she's like, Dad, look how small those handprints are. And it's another recontextualization, right? Um, thinking about about the passage of time, but also seeing her as a little 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 girl, and now as a little bit bigger child, um, it connects, right? It connects to residential schools. It connects as a parent. It continues to to remind me how different her life is, how different my life was as a as a child to my father. Confronting the truth of what has happened in Canada is complex work. Confronting the presence of space and place and human rights violation within our midst is at the core of our understanding of who we are as a nation. The past influences the world we live in right now. Across the country, Sites of mass human rights violations continue to exist in our backyards. Do you know where the closest residential school is to your community? Do you know if that school has a graveyard? Do you know the communities and nations that were forced to attend those schools? Canada is not immune from some of the greatest failings in the world. We are not immune from struggling with the questions of preservation, of destruction, and what to do with these complicated, difficult spaces that can at once harm and at the same time educate. These are histories that live with us today. There is still hard work to be done. So I just hope that for the future this work is sort of sustained, that when people are making an effort that it's not a token effort and that the fear of getting things wrong won't stop people who want to engage in this debate um, because you can always revise what you're doing. I'm hoping that these projects that we're doing here are impactful but that it's recognised it's not the end. This is a legacy from, you know, 200 years plus of the transatlantic slave trade. So we've got 200 years work at least in front of us. That that another aspect of truth and truth telling and, and truth knowing is how we integrate that into our identities, how we look at that as a country or as and as individuals. I don't know how many times you've heard people say, you know, when do we get to move forward? There's there's that kind of rush to to the happy part. But I don't know that we should. In fact, I'm I'm convinced that we need to give enough space to the truth that it becomes part of who we are. It becomes part of what it means to be Canadian. Hmm. Um, and once we get to that part of truth or that level of of engagement with truth, then we can start on the reconciliation. Right, because because it's fundamentally altered who we are and how we understand this country to be. 
This podcast was created through the direct teamwork of an incredible group of people. It was written and produced by Karina Greenwood and myself, editing and consulting by Cassidy Filburn Baracus, mixing and mastering by Matthias Leitch, and music by myself, Rimeran. Special thanks to the UVic Libraries team that assisted in countless ways on this production, and to Media One for audio content. Merci to our guests, Carrie Newman, Oliver Schmicke, and Tavia Panton. Tapuewen is made possible through the University of Victoria Strategic Framework Impact Fund and with direct support from the University of Victoria Libraries and CFUV Radio. This podcast was created in unceded Lekwungen and Wasanic territories. Okay, my friend. Well, it was pretty good to chat this way. It was pretty good. Huh. It was pretty good. Yeah, we should just record everything we say, I suppose. Oh, please no. <laughs> It'll be bad. It'll be bad for both of us. <laughs> that was good. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Okay.